Almighty God, we give you praise, we give you thanks for this time to dive into the book of Joel, to think about the end of the story of the Bible. We pray that it would be encouraging to us, we pray that um, it would feed our hearts, feed our souls, we pray that we would have a deeper appreciation of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Alright, so we uh, are looking at the book of Joel, the, the the main topic of the book of Joel, the main theme, is eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end, uh, of last things. Eschatos is, means last in Greek. And um, eschatology, therefore, is how the story of the Bible ends. And if you think about it, right, uh, how the story of God's salvation ends, and if you think about it, um, therefore, it's really central to Christianity. Um, I think a lot of times the impression that we get is eschatology is just some weird esoteric uh, with complicated timelines and everything like that. And so we um, have the sense, well, it's not that important. Actually, it is not just important. I would argue it is the whole point of the story, the whole point of the Bible. And how does the story, how does God's story end? Like all good stories, like all beautiful stories, it ends with a happy ending, um, with a beautiful renewal of all things. And so this is sort of the timeline that we've been looking at. You have the story, you have creation, God begins the world, it's good, but then Adam and Eve plunge the world and plunge humanity into sin and death, and then you have the long saga of Israel, and then the prophets and all throughout the Bible, they're talking about this end of history, the day of the Lord when God will draw near and fulfill all of the promises and all of the expectations of God's people and then from that point forward um, we'll have the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever we will be, God will dwell with us we will be with him, there will be no more tears no more tragedy, no more sorrows it will be forever and ever, by the way when we say new heavens and new earth the word heavens there is not referring to heaven um, as in the dwelling place of God, but heavens as in the skies, um, the starry hosts. Uh, the word heavens has you know multiple meanings in that sense. So basically, the new creation, right? The skies and the earth and everything. And therefore, eschatology is. This is eschatology. Let me coordinate it with. That is eschatology. It's it's about the end of the story, the day of the Lord which is going to be this climactic end, and then uh, new heavens and a new earth. And as I've been saying, as I've been arguing, um, the Bible has what's called a two-age eschatology. So this is this present evil age that uh, the Bible talks about so often. where you know Satan causes havoc, where there's tragedy and evil and death, and then there is the age to come. Paul says, he speaks about it as a glory that's not worth comparing to the sufferings of this age. And when you understand that that's the eschatology of the Bible, it's a two-age eschatology, therefore, we're not abandoning creation, but it's the renewal and the restoration and the beautification of creation, right? So creation continues, right? 
in the new heavens and the new earth. And as I've been arguing that, it's not, therefore, a two-world eschatology. So the two-world eschatology is sort of the popular cultural imagination of how it's, uh, you see it in, in books and movies and so forth, which is that God created the world, but because of sin and evil and human wickedness, the world is going to pot, right? The world is, is, is getting worse and worse and it's going to be destroyed. But then God is going to rescue his people in the rapture. I need to make space. In the rapture, God is going to rescue his people in the rapture and we're going to dwell with him in heaven. And that's how the story ends, right? And we're going to be with Jesus, and we're going to be with God forever and ever, and good riddance to the world, right? This evil, wicked world. Um, so that's a two-world eschatology, and I'm arguing that that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a two-age eschatology, and therefore, redemption is ahead of us in the new earth, not above us in heaven. Our rescue is not going to Jesus, but our rescue is Jesus coming to us in the day of the Lord. Okay? It's not us abandoning the earth, but it's the renewal of the earth. Um, any quick questions there? All right. So the, the, the question then a lot of people have is, well, then what is heaven? <laughs> I don't hear heaven in this, in this, because remember when it's a new heaven, the new earth, Heavens, the new heavens here is not heavens as in the dwelling place of God, uh, not this vision that Isaiah 6 has, for example, where God in his throne room, but heavens as in the skies and the starry hosts, right? So where is heaven in this two-age eschatology? And the answer is heaven is the dwelling place of God, right? Um, heaven is where God is. Um, God, of course, is everywhere, but God is especially in heaven, right? He's reigning in heaven. It's his throne room. And then the Bible says that after we die, our spirits, our souls, go to heaven to be with God, right? Uh, Jesus says, the bosom of Abraham. Um, oh, it's getting awfully hot. Do you want to, uh, Ruthie, can you lower the, the, the temperature a little bit? <laughs> Maybe I'm just hot. <laughs> um, so, our, our, so after we die, right? remember Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? So when we die, we go to be with Jesus. It's a happy place. It's, 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 it's a place of wonderful bliss because we're with Jesus, right? But it's a temporary waiting place. So let me sort of depict it. So this is heaven, right? All throughout human history, people are dying. Um, and those who are uh, of the Lord's, right, God's people will go to be with Jesus in heaven. Okay? But heaven is the waiting place, and heaven is where we wait with Jesus for the end of history. So everyone in heaven is waiting for this, the day of the Lord. Right? Do you remember there's this um, passage where um, there are the martyred souls under the altar 
and they're crying out to Jesus, right? When will you vindicate us? When will you avenge us? Meaning, there's still injustice, there's still death going on in God's creation, right? And heaven is where we wait, right? And one day, um, heaven will come down, and there'll be a climactic end on the day of the, of the Lord, and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And heaven and earth, and earth will merge and marry. Does that make sense? So the end of the Bible is heaven coming down to us, not us going up to heaven. Does that make sense? So, yes. Yeah. Um, that is a good question. I, I haven't thought about that passage in terms of how does it fit into this two-age eschatology. Um, it's just kind of odd to say I'm trying to win for you and it separates like... Yeah, so here's my stab at it. Um, my stab at it would be he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I don't think he's talking about heaven because everything else is talking about this two-age eschatology. So I don't think he's talking about heaven as this permanent abode. Uh, and and here's, here's Eric, what do you think? Do you, do you have an idea? Do you want to take a stab at that? My fellow seminarian? No, okay. Okay, good. You let, you, it's good that we both don't know. Um, I can get back to you, right? Because I, I think uh, Christy had a question, right? Um, about uh, two, one leave, right? So I have an answer for you. Okay, cool. See, so it's good, right? You ask me a question, um, and I can come back to you after thinking about it some more. All right, so the, the end of the story. So, so, so always, right, whenever you read a good story, you can cheat by just going to the end. And the end is the last pages. What are the last pages of the Bible? Revelation 21, 22. This is what we see. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Again, the word heaven there is sky, starry hosts. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, listen to this, coming down out of heaven from God. So maybe that explains it, right? Maybe Jesus is, what he's doing is he's the architect of this New Jerusalem and is coming down, right, from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be with they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what do we see? The end of the story, the end of God's story, God's people's story, is the marriage of heaven and earth. And God will no longer dwell apart from his creation in heaven, but he will dwell in and with us, right? Um, that the earth itself is going to be renewed. And this is, by the way, why... Jesus is resurrected. Why is, why, why is Jesus resurrected from the cross? Well, there's many, many reasons, right? It's the vindication of, vindication of his claims after the crucifixion by the Romans. But why, why does he bodily resurrect? If our final destination is heaven, why does he need a physical body? Continually, Paul talks about Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits. What are first fruits? Well, we're all city-dwelling people. We, we have no idea. First fruits is the very first harvest, the very first fruits of the harvest, and it's a harbinger, it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. What is to come? The resurrection of all things, the resurrection of our bodies. And so we're going, our future is a resurrected bodily future 
in a renewed and beautified, restored creation, not that we're going to be disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds. That's the Simpsons version of heaven. The Simpsons is funny, but not biblical. <laughs> um, so the resurrection tells us that our final hope is physical and it's bodily. That's what the resurrection is all about. Um, I think that there's a lot of confusion in the ambiguity in the word heaven. So I, de- so I don't tell my boys, actually, we're going to go to heaven. I think that's fine, by the way, if by heaven you mean the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but because our cultural language is heavens is the Simpsons heaven, right? This floaty, cloudy experience. I always tell my boys, we're going to go to God's new world, right? And I think that's a, a way to talk about this physical created world being restored. Um, any questions on that before I go on? Okay. I have a question. Yes. So, you, um, this new earth, the new earth is this earth, but restored? Yes. So, um, it's this earth. Right. Thinking about all the people that have lived here since the beginning of time. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're an architect, right? You're, I mean, you're a civil engineer. So, you need to shut that part of your brain off. <laughs> um, um, nothing is impossible with God, right? And so uh, I don't understand. I don't know how it will be. Uh, if you look at the dimensions of the uh, new heavens and um, I'm sorry, the new Jerusalem, it talks about it being twelve thousand stadia. That's basically, I believe, it comes out to modern measurements five thousand. It's a five thousand uh, uh, cubic square city. So that obviously doesn't encompass the whole Earth, but it's just s- symbolic language. It's just, it's just going to be this amazing mega city in this physical earth. But the, 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 the actualities of it, we don't, we don't know the dimensions and so forth. The Bible actually is very, very not detailed when it comes to talking about the new heavens and the new earth, other than in terms of the negative. There'll be no tears, there'll be no suffering, there'll be no death. We'll be with God forever. Does that answer? Sort of, yeah. Would, don't think about specifics. <laughs> Although I would argue, I do, I would argue that um, the Earth, it's it's possible with hyperdense cities, right? To uh, for the Earth to to absorb quite a number of people. But again, I think this is we're going down. This, these are not the answers the Bible is thinking about. <laughs> but you will be useful in the new heavens and earth. <laughs> Your skill sets will come into use. <laughs> Oh, I think there was a question here first. So, since you're saying that this model you think is biblically not correct, yes. will evil not necessarily get worse before the new heavens and the new earth? Um, like worse. Or, the Antichrist. Yeah, so, we're, so if you look at uh, the New Testament particularly, it talks about the end times. Um, and remember, I, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. I believe we're already in the end times. But um, the end times, it talks about it as this really dark period of persecution, of uh, um, power swirling around and persecuting uh, God's people. And there'll be, you know, uh, there'll be Babylon, there'll be the prostitute. There's, there's all kinds of wickedness abounding. Um, and in that sense, yes, things are getting worse. But then also the Bible talks about things getting better. It talks about the millennium, for example. It talks about how the church is advancing. The kingdom of God is growing and expanding. And so the eschatology that I'm trying to introduce to you guys is all of, the, all of those descriptions and all of those languages, all, all of those um, 
themes that you see in the Bible, they're all compounded and together in this thing called the Day of the Lord. So it's both negative and positive. Um, and I think to separate them into separate segments, so this is what sort of this kind of eschatology does. It basically says preceding the rapture, there'll be this specific period, and then there'll be this period, and then there'll be this period, and then each one has its own distinctive um, elements and events and so forth. This is where, this is sort of the popular imagination. It's incredibly complicated. I think you need a PhD to parse it all out, um, but it's misreading the Bible. Yes and no, right? It will be our bodies, but um, it'll be glorified bodies. It'll be, um, the, the analogy I would use is this, right? Do, do you know when you, um, when you visit someone who has cancer, who's dying of cancer, anyone who's visited a loved one who's dying of cancer, you look at them and it's a shock. They're a shadow of their former selves. They're, they're wilting away. And just like that, we right now, we are a shadow of our future selves. And what we will be, I mean, when I see you in the new heavens and new earth, I'll be like, Matthew, I didn't know, right? How, right, every, right, all of us right now, we're just crusted over with flaws and problems and, and disabilities, but we will all be free. We'll all realize the fullness of who we could be, and we'll all be amazed. Will we have our memories? Will we have a memory of our past? Yeah, yeah, I think so, because the Bible talks about people praising the Lamb of God, giving him thanks for their salvation. So I, I don't think it would be like a memory wipe, and we're like, whoa, this is the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever happened in the former age, we don't know. So this is the way, so th- this is the reality of it, right? The new heavens and the new earth will last forever. Now, by the way, the forever idea, our minds cannot grasp, right? But we can only grasp quantities, so there will be a time when we cross a thousand years in the new heavens and the new earth. And then there will be a time when we cross a million years. And then there will be a time when we cross a billion years. And then what, we'll, what this life will look like is this. And this will be our forever existence in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll look back at this period as this extremely consequential, extremely important, but brief time. And we'll look back at all of our anxieties and all of our, our fears, and we'll realize that they were so small compared to this forever reality with Christ. Yes, Mel? I'm kind of hesitant to ask this question. Go ahead. <laughs> like I need to know the answer if you have it. Is, is How have I been in the church for 25 years, the Presbyterian church, and before that, in Baptist and Nazarene churches, and I've never heard a preacher preach this? Uh, Where did this come from? So this didn't come from anywhere. This came 150 years ago. Um, this idea of the, the rapture theory of the end of the Bible came 150 years ago. It's linked to this um, larger theological teaching called dispensationalism, which is a reaction to sort of liberal teachings that was happening in the church and in America. Yes? So are you saying that they, they have been teaching wrong for the last 
150, 200 years? About 150 years. It was a it was a strong reaction against liberalism, and they basically said, "Well, we gotta we gotta believe the literal everything the Bible literally says." And so they started to separate the story of Israel and the church. And the story of Old Testament Israel with the Jews has a separate destiny and reality from the New Testament church. And so the rapture was designed to evacuate and separate the New Testament church so that the story of Israel can continue. And it could be the millennium, it could be the restoration of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the sacrifices and everything, all the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And I would say it was an overreaction to liberalism because there was always the classic teaching stretching back to the early church um, you see this in Augustine. You see this all in the early church fathers. This is what we, we've always classically taught. Um, if you're distressed, I'm also distressed. I was taught this as well growing up, right? And so it's, it's I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's disturbing. So I know you guys are probably like, what is going on? Pastor Michael might be a heretic. Um, so this is why I'm, I'm instead of focusing on Joel the whole time, I've been really trying to do this. Yes, Warren. Yeah, I follow up on Mel's question, and I don't believe uh, you're a heretic. Thank you. <laughs> you know, when um, let's say it's 200 years ago, 150 years ago, whenever that was introduced, yeah, and the teaching was that way. Um, if people believe of uh, the the believers uh, know that the spirit was in them and the spirit is in us to help us you know uh, discern what is truth and we, we keep on searching for truth right? yeah and throughout the whole Bible it always mentions something about um, you know, watch out for false teaching watch out watch out for false teaching those folks who died and if they're being taught these things that just appeared not too long ago. So how do you, how do you reconcile? Yeah. That so with them? How, I don't think this uh, endangers the gospel too profoundly. Well, um, there might be other things that endanger the gospel. Maybe. I mean, yeah. Because of the way some people. I, I want to be generous. Um, everybody, you know, it's very possible. I mean, certainly, I agree this in myself. Everybody has flawed understanding of scripture, um, and and errors creep in. And this is why God is always protecting his church. He's always causing revival within the church. So I will say this. This view is falling out of popularity in the seminaries and among theologians and among pastors. This view is dying. But as humans, we are very stubborn. We stick to what sometimes Let me finish the good news, right? This view is dying. This view continues to capture the popular imagination because... There's Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and everything. This view is popular in the pews, but this view is coming back, and this is the dominant view, I would say, in seminaries right now, right? Yeah. So, so God preserves his church, you know? It, so there's been an argument between these two views, I would say, for a vigorous argument for maybe 40 years, and this view is prevailing. So what you're talking about is partial preterism, right? Uh, what do you talk? What do you mean partial preterism? In terms of in that, terms of this one right here, that instead of all this stuff happening at the end of the world, that most of it's already happened. No, just, I'm not talking about partial we're preterism. We're waiting for some of it. To yeah, I don't want to explain it to everybody, but I'm not talking about partial preterism. No. Okay, let's go on. Um, uh, 
All right, so what about the people in heaven? Um, I'm going to really debate how I'm going to use my time. All right. Um, what about the people in heaven? So the First Thessalonians chapter 4 is answering that question. What about the people in heaven? Right? The spirits who are in heaven. So let, let me read the passage to you. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive... By the way, we who are alive, what is that? He's talking about people who are like us, you and me. We physically alive, right, on the earth, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So this, this is the people who will be alive when Jesus returns, right? Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Who are the people fallen? What does Paul mean when he says fallen asleep? Yeah. The dead. The dead, that's right. Why does he, uh, the dead in Christ, by the way, why does he say that the dead are asleep? Other than the fact that people who are asleep and people who are dead look Yes. Is sleep permanent? No. At the end of sleep, you always wake up. So it's a, it's, do you understand? It's an amazing metaphor. Whenever I explain to Judah and Noah about death, I always tell them, when you die, it's like going to sleep. And then one day, Jesus, King Jesus is going to take our hands and he's going to say, it's time to wake up. That's right. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Trumpet is very important. We'll talk about that later. And the dead in Christ, so that's what we've been talking about, people who are in heaven, the dead in Christ will rise first. The word rise there um, in the Greek is the word for resurrection. Then we who are alive, that's you know people who are on earth alive when Jesus comes, who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Okay? So let me just graphically draw this out, because it'll be easier to understand. So, um, so this is earth, right? And this is heaven. And what it's saying is that when at the coming of Jesus... Right? He will bring with him all this, the soul, right? So let's say this is Jesus. He will bring with him all the people who are asleep, who have fallen asleep, who are the dead in Christ. And then we who are left, who are alive, will be caught up with Jesus. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and it says that um, the Christians who are alive on earth will not precede the dead in Christ. Meaning, we will all experience the resurrection together. Okay? This climactic day of the Lord. The waiting period is over for people in heaven. They will finally wake up, so to speak. They will finally receive their glorified bodies. And then we who are alive will be caught up with the Lord. The word caught up there in the Latin, in the original, in not the original, in the, uh, in the Latin Vulgate translation is the word rapere. Where do you think rapere translates into? Rapture. That's where we get the word rapture. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we get the word rapture, by the way. So this is the rapture. Look, looks familiar, right? So uh, the question is, what happens after we've been raptured? That's the debate. Now, according to sort of the common popular theology, the rapture means that we will go with Jesus to heaven. Right? That's familiar. But is that the reality? 
Why couldn't it be that Jesus will bring us, bring, that we will be caught up and then Jesus will continue down to earth? And I think what settles the question, the debate, is the word, the coming of the Lord. The word coming of the Lord there is the word parousia. Um, parousia doesn't just mean coming. It's a very specific technical word in the Greek. It, just, it means visitation of a king. And it describes a specific setting in the ancient world. When a king would go out to battle and fight the enemy, and then he would, he would defeat the enemy, he would come back as the victorious king. And what would the people do when the victorious king returns? They would go out to meet the king, they would line up the streets, and they would cheer and praise his name, and it would be this amazing triumphal entry. right? So that's the imagery. The triumphal king is coming back. All the people are coming out to greet him, right? He's coming with all of the, the saints in heaven, and then the people on earth are going to be caught up in the sky with him to greet him. And where is Jesus going to go? He's going to go back, right? It's like, if this is the city, and this is the returning king, does he, does he meet his people and then do a U-turn? No, he goes into the city, Right? And so that's the language, uh, that's the imagery here. Um, it's, it's, it's Jesus coming to restore and renew the earth. He'll be with us forever and ever. Um, I want to ask you, answer your question, Christy. In Matthew 24, Luke 17, it talks about two men. Jesus is talking about this day of the Lord, the ending. Two men in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. So I believe he's talking about the rapture. I agree. Um, preceding that discussion, he says, it'll be like the days of Noah. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? It was the flood. So what is that? It's judgment day. So this is not, I believe it's not talking about rapture in the popular imagination, because after the rapture, there is no judgment day. There's a long, 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 long period, a thousand years and so forth. I believe it's talking about this, which is that this, when Jesus comes, that will be judgment day. And one will be taken, meaning one will, one will be caught up in the air with the Lord and one will be left to face the wrath of the warrior king, Jesus. Yes, Warren? Yes, uh, Pastor. Um, talk about First uh, Thess- Thessalonians 4. There's, there's mention about falling asleep and so forth. Um, in Revelation 6, 9, it says, uh, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Yeah. It says, And they cried with a loud voice, Who are they then? So these are the saints in heaven who have died, who are waiting with Jesus, and they're saying, when will this day of the Lord be? When will you vindicate us? When will you avenge our blood? When will the judgment day happen? When will we make everything right? And they're waiting. That's why heaven is not the ultimate destination, because we're waiting in heaven. If we die, if we should all die today, we will all be with the Lord and with Jesus in heaven, but we'll all still be waiting. It is not our final destination. We're waiting for this. We're waiting for this. Does the Bible specifically say that, or are we taking a look and saying, from what we gathered, this is what it seems like? The, the way the Bible talks about the ending is it's like 500 different images. And you have to understand, they're all talking about the same thing. So there's no like systematic paper that spells it all out for us. But you, 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 it's a mosaic, it's a quilt that you just all piece together. And this other, the popular theory, what it does is it separates all of the passages into this complex timeline, and which one goes before which. 
And I would say that's a very poor reading of scripture. <laughs> All right. Right, Second Peter. Um, I, I, that's a, another, in fact, I will even tell you right now, even after researching, I probably won't be able to tell you the answer. <laughs> yeah, he preaches his spirits. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, um, and so here's the practical reality. Here's why I think this theology is so much better also than the rapture theology, right? Let me just draw it again so you can see it. So this is rapture theology. Let me tell you why. If our final destination is the new heavens and the earth and not heaven, then this life matters. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection. By the way, the exact same event as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. There's that same language again. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's the resurrection. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Remember, you guys heard the trumpet before? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Same event, right? All the imageries merged together. Um... The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, right? That's the dead in Christ, um, resurrected bodies. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. He's talking about the resurrection. Then, And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that, that, that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. No more death. And then this is the conclusion to the passage. This is sort of like, this is your take-home lesson. Verse 58, Paul writes, Therefore, what should you do in light of this? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If this is your, if this is your theology, why should you do anything on this earth? We're on the Titanic. Why rearrange the deck chairs? The ship is going down. You're commanded to. <laughs> yes, but why? But if this God, is... God loves everyone. <laughs> yes, so I agree. You can, you, can, all... you can do it, but, but it doesn't help you. This theology doesn't help you. But well, let me finish. But if this is your theology, that creation is not going to be abandoned, but it's going to be renewed and restored, then everything you do matters. That's why Paul says, right? Your labor is not in vain. Everything good and beautiful that you ever achieve in this life will not be destroyed, but will be taken into the next age, the new heavens and the new earth, and it will last forever and ever. All the good things, all the people uh, who love the Lord, all of us will be taken out of this age and into the next age. And, and that's why all our, our labors are not in vain. Yes, no? What does believing this as opposed to believing that, how does that change my Christianity? Or does it? It does. So that's what I'm arguing. It absolutely does. That means this physical life matters. It means that when we fight injustice, when we fight poverty, right, we're, we're moving towards the new heavens and the new earth. Because the new heavens and the new earth will not have poverty. It will not have suffering. There will be no cruelty. 
we're moving in that direction. And the, 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 the day of the Lord gives us hope that one day it will happen. King Jesus will return. And he will say, good and faithful servant, I commend you. You've been doing my work. We're moving towards this. Does that make sense? Yes, but the people that believe the old way yeah. believe that also. They do, but their theology doesn't help them, in my belief. Because what they believe is this world is going to go down, and that their ultimate destination is heaven, this ethereal, cloudy existence, and this physical world will burn up and disappear. What does that affect? How does that affect their Christian life, though? I don't understand by believing that instead of this. Um, there, there's so there's a lot of people who, um, as a result of this sort of theology, they basically say, "I'm just going to prepare for heaven." Is believing that going to keep me from going to heaven? No. Is believing that going to keep me from going to heaven? No. But but I'm telling you, this theology doesn't help you because a lot of people who hold this kind of theology. There, there are a lot of people who basically say, well, let's just pray and read the Bible. And this dirty world, let's abstain from it because it's all going down anyway. And we're just waiting for Jesus to come back. And then we're waiting to be evacuated up into heaven. I'm not saying all people who believe that. I'm just saying that, that this theology doesn't contradict that way of thinking. Is this too simple to say then that the only benefit from believing this is knowing truth. No, there are many, many benefits. <laughs> uh, one of them is abounding, you know, being steadfast. Uh, and the other thing is it gives you incredible hope that the the corruption, the evil, the death in this life, this world, will become undone, that Jesus will wipe away all of our tears, and this world will be redeemed. But I had all that hope in the old way. <laughs> I, had, I had all of that. I think last time you said something that might will be destroyed. Yeah. In fact, the Bible actually has language. The earth will be burned up. But that language is referring to the evil, the injustice. Yeah. So that would mean that, that the things that take place on this earth don't just don't just disappear like they do in that in the rapture version or in the popular version. Yeah. But that they remain. Yes. And so then that would make those things matter more. Because it will last everything that you do for the Lord for the glory of Jesus, everything, every beautiful thing, every time you're at work and you're working towards justice, you're working towards the flourishing of humanity, you're working to, to, for um, the common good, to that degree you're doing it, it will last forever. That gives your work new meaning. Is that like storing treasure in heaven? Is that is that because that you know in scripture it says you know how we are told to store up treasure in heaven rather than earth? Yes. Is that what essentially kind of mean? Is that what you totally work for? Yeah, you're working for for Jesus in His kingdom, Miss Tracy. Uh, I don't know if my question is stemming from misunderstanding. So if we if everything that we do working towards justice and everything is contributing to new heavens and earth, yes, what you're saying, right? Yes. But if when Jesus comes, everything is anyway yes what motivates us to do <laughs> right so um, it's sort of like this right um, if you know that it's going to happen anyway why should I do it at all if that is your attitude then the only reason why you are doing anything is because um, 
you know, your, your, your motivation was maybe to earn merit with Jesus. Um, it wasn't the thing in and itself, right? Um, it, it's, so, it's sort of like this, right? What if somebody said to you, um, here's, a, he, uh, here's a, uh, a test that I want you to study for. Here's all this knowledge you need to learn, but I guarantee you're going to get an A. No matter what, how you do, you're going to get the A. And you're going to say, well, then pencils down. I'm not going to study. Well, then I, obviously that was the only motivation. But rather than that, it should be like, oh, I'm going to get an A. So the pressure's off. And now I can study and really learn and enjoy myself. I don't know if that makes sense. All right. So C.S. Lewis, who articulates the classic view, I really love this imagery. I'm going to basically abandon Joel. But um, <laughs> um, C.S. Lewis has this great imagery. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the Murrays, I know you have. The Murrays taught this. I mean, not the Murray taught this. C.S. Lewis taught this view. Okay, listen to this. Um, listen to this. The last battle. This is the end story. One of the best books, actually, in the Chronicles of Narnia. You will not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life is from a dream. And so this life will seem, there's a famous quote, C.S. Lewis says, it's like shadow lands. This life will seem like a shadowy existence compared to when we wake up, when we realize the fullness of what is to come. So with that in mind, let's go into Joel. I'm just going to do what I can. Um, Joel and the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the event that will cataclysmically end history. And God will draw near judgment day for evildoers, salvation for God's people. And the argument that I've been making all along is that we are presently inside the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord has, in a sense, already happened. It's been inaugurated in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We talked about Malachi 4, 4 verse 5. The prophet Elijah will precede the day of the Lord. That Malachi 4, 5 is quoted in Mark and Matthew, I believe, talking about John the Baptist. So the day of the Lord has already been inaugurated. It's been 2,000 years since that event. So how can this day of the Lord be a 2,000-year period? And I gave you the analogy of the mountain range, right? When far away, the mountain range looks like a single point. But when you get inside the mountain range, you realize the peaks are miles and miles away from each other. And therefore, we are already at the end of history. And I think one of the confusion when we hear the word end times is we think, oh, that means the end of chronological history, like in a history book. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It's talking about the end times, meaning the end of God's story, the end of God's redemptive story. We're already in it, right? Um, so it's not ahead of us, but it's presently happening to us. We are inside of the day of the Lord. Hebrews 1, I gave you some. This is not in your bullet, uh, not in your handouts. Long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to us, uh, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So what is Hebrews 1 telling us? that we are now in the last days. He says, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That was 2,000 years ago we were in the last days, right? That's right. That's right. We're, in, we're at the end of history. We're in the day of the Lord. Listen to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. By the way, there's like eight verses. I just chose two. Uh, they were written down for our instructions. This is, and he's talking about you know, scripture. And on whom us, right, his audience, on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you see? 
So, uh, let's dive into Joel. I think I have enough time just to skip all the way. I'm so sad. I can't even tell you how much research I did into all the verses and everything. But it's all, it's all gonna be for naught. No, everything will be good and redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. You will hear my lesson there. <laughs> um, let's skip all the way to the very end, to verse 28. Because this is what I really wanted to get to. This is the most famous passage in Joel. Um, the future day of the Lord. Uh, in verse 20 he says, And it shall come to pass afterward. So the word, it shall come to pass afterward, is describing the events after everything that has happened. The locusts, there's going to be this uh, immediate restoration, but it's talking about a future event, the day of the Lord. And this is how he describes it. And I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. Now, if you know the Bible, you know this is quoted in Acts. We'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to talk to you about what is Joel talking about. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So he's talking about this new effusive profusion of God's grace that will happen on the day of the Lord. And so what is new about this? Joel is talking about the same thing that Ezekiel is talking about, that Jeremiah is talking about, and he's talking about something called the New Covenant. Okay, so I just want to, because this is very important. The New Covenant versus the Old Covenant. Okay? Um, What is the difference between the New and the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And the essence of the Old Covenant was this. Obey me, you will live. Disobey me, you will die. You will perish. The problem with the Old Covenant is that, what, what is the problem with the Old Covenant? People disobeyed, right? People continually rebelled. Because the law, therefore, wasn't in a, Right, God says, here's the law, and the law couldn't make the people holy. So the Old Covenant failed. It failed to produce true holiness in God's people. So God, through the prophets, promises a new covenant that will happen on the day of the Lord. Okay, And the new covenant is this. God will put his law into our hearts. So it's not just external rules and threats to keep us in line, but it's going to be an inward heart change. This inner desire, this inner motivation. Right? It's sort of like, I, I sort of think of it like this. What's the difference between a nanny and a mother? The nanny cares for the children because she's paid. right? Hopefully she loves the children too, but the money is driving her. Why does the mother love her children? Because they're her children, right? So that's the difference. There's going to be an inward heart change. Why do we obey the Lord? Not because of fears and threats and punishment, but because we love the Lord. This is going to happen in the new covenant, in the day of the Lord. And let me just read you two passages. Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart, And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart, a a heart of, sorry, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So he's talking about this heart transformation, and it's going to happen by God's spirit coming inside of us. This is an amazing promise, by the way. God's spirit was always sort of external to God's people, 
right? It would sometimes come upon certain leaders like David or Samson or, or Saul, but only in a temporary provision. But now God's Spirit is going to come inside all of his people. That's going to happen on the day of the Lord. Jeremiah 31, listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they, that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Right, So he's saying the old covenant is going to go, go away. It didn't work. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So that's what Joel is talking about. He's talking about this event that's going to happen on the day of the Lord. He's going to, God's going to pour out his spirit. By the way, the, the language of pour, it's not stingy. God's not going to drizzle his spirit. He's not going to drop his spirit. He's going to pour it out. And he's talking about this new age of the spirit with his abundance of gifts and prophecy and visions and dreams to all of God's people, great and small, men and women, old and young, without social distinction. And when do we see this great promise of the pouring out of the Spirit that will happen on the day of the Lord? It happens. It begins to happen in the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? Yes? You said uh, you're going to pour out the Spirit. Uh, that's, and you said God's Spirit. Do you see the difference between God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit? No. Same thing. Yeah, God's spirit. Um, God will pour, uh, uh, Jesus is, Jesus baptizes us with the spirit and that is finally fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, which is a direct quote of Joel chapter 2. So this is Pentecost. Uh, I'm just going to sort of summarize it for you. Uh, uh, Jesus' disciples are gathered to pray and um, then God's spirit comes upon them like tongues of fire appearing over them and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues and then remember the crowd grumbles. Oh, they're all drunk. Don't pay attention to him. Verse 14, but Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it was only the third hour of the day. That's about 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Right? He quotes Joel. He says, in, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, I just want to point out verse 17. Notice Peter changes the words. Did you guys notice that? In Joel, it says, it shall come to pass afterward, talking about a future event. But in Peter, it says, and in the last days it shall be, meaning it's no longer future. You know what that means? The day of the Lord has already begun. We are now inside the day of the Lord. What, what, are, the, what, what are some elements of the day of the Lord? Um, Elijah the prophet will precede it. That's John the Baptist. Um, there will be a, a pouring out of the Spirit on all God's people. The Spirit will come inside of us so that the law won't be outside, but inside of our hearts. That happened at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so the day of the Lord, this cataclysmic future event, is not awaiting us in the future. It has already happened, and it is continuing to happen. Here's another proof. Um, in, Joel cha- in Joel chapter uh, 2, uh, it talks about how on the day of the Lord, there's going to be earthquakes, and then the sun and the moon are going to be darkened. The clouds are going to be darkened. If that has already happened, when did it happen? Yes. You guys remember the description of Jesus 
that. There's an earthquake, and then the sun is blotted out. The sky is darkened. Do you know what that is? Those are signs of judgment. Except the judgment isn't coming on the whole world. It's coming on his son. The day of the Lord is already here. It has already happened. Um, We are inside of it, and it's continuing to happen, and we're still awaiting its future fulfillment. So that is it. I... I weep tears because I, I, I skipped out so much. But is there any questions? Uh, we cannot because we have other Sunday school scheduled. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. Each each lesson is such a such a Herculean effort too that I, I have to limit number. Um, any questions then? All right. Yes. Yeah, so, there so, are things about that that don't seem as eternal. Yeah, so let me, let me speak to that. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons why sort of the rapture theology is not so helpful to Christian living is that it sort of makes missionary and evangelism work more important than being a teacher or being a worker. And I think if you have this kind of theology, then you know the whole world is going to be renewed. Souls are going to be renewed. So absolutely evangelism is important. But also working for justice, working for um, to eliminate poverty, helping human beings to flourish, to realize their full potential. This is also the work of the Lord. So what you're doing as a teacher is just as beautiful, just as valid, just as God-glorifying as missionary work. Missionary work is vital. We need to do it as well, but all of it together. That way, like a lot of times people have this sort of theology, oh, what I do at work is just for money. It's all going downhill anyway. Like people say, a lot of times I hear this kind of language, like, oh, this, um, this life is temporary, right? And um, if they mean this, age is temporary, yes. But this life, so I, I feel like then you have a kind of mentality, like the only good thing is when I come on Sunday and worship and then I give my money and then that will be used for God's work. That's the only good thing. And that kind of theology... I think is it, it splits your life. I don't know, Ruthie. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for this um, study. Uh, these are new ideas for a lot of us. Um, whether they are true or not, we give it to you, Lord. Help us to discern the truth. We pray that um, all errors will fall away and we'll forget about them. All good things, eternal, lasting things, will last forever and ever. And encourage our hearts. We pray this in Christ.